This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look back at the action from the Catalan Grand Prix. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on the pod today. And Neil, I've got a question for you actually, because obviously the Catalan Grand Prix is effectively your home Grand Prix. Does it make it less stressful or more stressful that you have to get in and out to the track each day? Probably more stressful. I would say it takes longer to get into the track, yeah, from where I live in Barcelona than it does in somewhere else. Like Magello, we were staying about five minutes away from the tracks. So that was just easy. We could actually sit and have a, a relaxed breakfast uh, with each other in the morning. Um, but uh, yeah, it was 6, 6.30 a.m. starts. Um, what are you yeah. trying to say about my motorcycle riding? <laughs> Can I just point out? I just point out, dear listener, that Neil was on the back of my one two five cc Honda Scoopy going to the track, <laughs> so he's just slighted my riding ability, even though I had the thing on full tap along the motorway trying to get into the circuit. Well, this is actually my follow up question for you, Ad, because obviously your home Grand Prix as well, but on the scooter, the the rainstorms must have been incredibly pleasant. Yeah, we had to dodge them, Steve. So we had a slightly delayed, uh, as people who may have listened to the Paddock podcast, Paddock Notes show uh, on Sunday, may have realized that uh, we were stuck in the press room for quite some time because MotoGP had a very narrow escape with the climate because it absolutely bucketed down for at least an hour and, uh, and then we were able to get away. Um, so it was interesting, actually, for the MotoGP test today that they had to clean the track. And I wondered if that might have had something to do with, you know, the swift deluge of the uh, late spring storm. But it was actually an unrelated issue. But uh, yeah, like Neil says, getting into the track was a little bit of a labour of love sometimes. And uh, we, yeah, we did re- we did ring the neck of that Honda. I was fearful that when Neil was bringing back all these different plates from the Severino's catering inside the paddock, you know, I thought my fuel bill was going slightly up as he managed to shovel every morsel into his mouth. Well, it's your it, it, it's your it's your own fault for you, you two hipsters living in the in the middle of Barcelona instead of a nice little uh, suburb of Granollers. Um, to uh, uh, then it would be a nice easy commute. There's a couple of lovely industrial estates out there, so uh, you know. But if we lived in a suburb of Granollers, Dave, our, our apartments would be burgled every six months. So um, you know, we're, we're probably better off living in the city. Yeah, thank God that you're in Barcelona, safe city very much not known for uh, everyone getting pickpocketed and things like that and um, obviously dave for you you've had a really busy time looking at probably frame by frame of fabio over the course of today but as a question for you would the paddock pass podcast be better served by having that reverse facing camera looking at adam with his nips out rather than fabio well i don't think uh, i reckon um uh, i reckon adam's more buff than fabio because fabio's a bit skinny um uh, uh, like a lot of motorbike racers so um i think there'd be i think there'd be a bit more peck action if we had um if we had the uh, adam cam there's distinctly less uh, move action going on with fabio um you know neil and i can testify because i think it was on thursday we saw him you know half naked walking down the pit lane after running the track and uh, you know he does like to strip off doesn't he um so it was uh oh it was a big talking point of the race both on the bike and off the bike exactly there's a lot of manscaping going on there as well i can't quite say either um uh, uh either people are born entirely hairless now or um uh gillette is selling a lot of product well i've lost a lot of my hair so maybe maybe the same things happened to fabio as well neil obviously enough um fabio 
was probably the big talking point this weekend because he was super fast all the way through practice. When we were doing the Paddock Note show on Saturday night, you know, it was absolutely nailed on certainty that Fabio was going to win it, according to David. And obviously with David's history of predictions, that went really well. Exactly, Steve. Yeah, I think everyone was ready to give Fabio the trophy on Saturday night, me included, to be honest. It was just hard to see uh, it going any other way. Um, especially considering his performance at Mugello. He loves the Barcelona track. Um, picked up his first Moto2 win there. Um, won there last year. Looked just brilliant across free practice. But um, yeah, just did not quite go to plan. And obviously we saw some really puzzling and strange scenes towards the end of the race. Having some issues with, I think, his chest protector. Then having to undo his leathers. Well, that's what we think has happened. Uh, and then, you know, throwing his chest protector across, uh, well, not... Yeah, across the track, I guess you could say. Um, it was a, a puzzling one. Yeah, obviously, Adam, you were in the paddock yesterday and on paddock notes you were talking about the fact that you had actually talked to people within you know, Fabio's camp, within Alpine Stars, just to find out the actual conditions of the leathers. And everything you heard back was that the leathers were fine. This was a bit of operator error, really, it sounds like. Yeah, first off, Steve, um, I think it's worth pointing out that Quattararo said post-race that he was kind of waiting behind, um, you know, Oliveira. I think we could have anticipated a, a pretty, you know, strong attack in the last couple of laps before he had this malfunction, wardrobe malfunction. Um, and, you know, he said that the, the KTM was really strong on the left-hand and uh, on the left-hand turn. So Oliveira had been preserving the tire quite well for that factor so isn't it's curious to see no rather if you know that victory that everyone had predicted would have actually have turned out that way but um of course the scenes you know where the leathers look pretty bad for alpine stars and in typical fashion they went about their kind of post race uh dissection you know with a lot of um thorough analysis i mean they were looking at images of fabio on the grid um, just before the start of the race, both video and photos, you know, and they deduced that the zip was all done up fully. Um, also, the suit, you know, Fabio zipped it up perfectly um, on the slowdown lap. So it's not like the zip broke. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the suit. Uh, you know, the, I think it's it seems quite unusual that a rider would be able to quickly unzip it the way that he did uh, while he's, you know, lapping, you know, Montmelo, uh, you know, a one forty two lap time. Um but, you know, I, I for my two cents worth, I know Dave's been analysing it today. You know, he obviously had a, an issue with his chest protector. He unzipped the leathers and then he realised he was screwed because he ditched the protection. And then to try and sit bolt upright enough to quickly rectify the problem was not possible. And then the race was gone by then. Pretty much spot on. That's pretty much what I uh, uh, what I was saying because I've been doing the same, looking at pictures, looking at the, at the footage. There's lots of. Um, uh, luckily, there is the onboard footage from uh, Fabio's bike, but uh, not a lot of it is not particularly useful. But you can actually see up until lap twenty, he's perfectly fine. There's nothing. It, there seems to be sort of you know a little bit of neck, neck action, but I think that's sort of normal. You can also see on the grid that what it, what it looks like if you compare. Um, him to Maverick Vinales, who also wears uh, Alpine Stars. Um, they have a different tab. Uh, Fabio's got a really long uh, zipper tab, so you know, sort of a, a with, a, with a, a big bit of plastic to be able to grab hold of it on. Um, but it did look like Fabio's chest protector was sort of up higher. 
um, uh, on the grid than than Mavericks. Mavericks was sort of much more neatly tucked in. Uh, and then you can see him going into turn one uh, at the beginning of lap to, lap twenty one, and the the leathers still look closed, um, at least on the footage. And then you see him coming out of turn four, or uh, just about to enter turn four, and the leathers are uh, completely open, just completely open. Um, and if you actually watch the helicopter shot, you can see his hands move. Uh, you can actually see, um, which it frankly is amazing because it's a very, very long right-hander. They're doing about 150 k's an hour there. I think it's a second or a third. I think it's a third gear corner. Um, so they're not hanging about. And he's hung all the way over uh, and he reaches up. You see his arm move up and you see him sort of fiddling around at his neck and it looks like he's trying to push it, uh, uh, do something with the um, uh, with the chest protector, just get it out of the way or something. That doesn't work. And then you just see him open his leathers and throw the thing out and um, uh, before and by the time they actually exit the corner he's 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 gone i think it's worth pointing out as well that you know maybe viewers have seen on MotoGP cameras the riders when they're in the pit box they're literally just throwing these things inside their leathers and the last minute it's like a foam kind of i don't know some sort of impact resistant absorption absorption material that's just going straight inside their leathers and they're zipping it up so the possibility for it to move around in contrast to something maybe in off-road racing where it's more of a throw over unit the riders can velcro or clip together um is pretty high i mean we'll probably not see an incident like this you know certainly at the front of a mogp race for years but you know the important thing is is that fabio instead of walking away from you know maybe a second consecutive win uh you know in two in two weekends and 25 points he's only got 10 um, and it's let you know, and Zarko grab much, uh, go much closer towards uh, him in the standing. So, you know, those three points could be vital at the end of the season. But I mean, it, it, to me, it looked like, like you say, it is. It's actually um, uh, sort of the, that um, hard plastic foam. I'm not quite sure the the exact name of the uh, of the plastic, but it, you know, it, it's the same stuff that a lot of um, uh, shoulder and, and elbow protectors are made of. Uh, uh, that it goes in. It is quite soft. It's quite pliable, but it does just uh, absorb a, a bit of a uh, a bit of impact. What's really interesting is that you know Mark Marquez also wears Alpine stars. Um, you see Mark Marquez walk into the box. He's already got his uh, his leathers closed. Everything is fit. Everything is already in place. That is dealt with. He doesn't have to think about it. Whereas uh, Mav uh, or uh, sorry Fabio, Fabio likes to get onto grid and he's sort of flaunting his um, uh, flaunting his bare chest. Um, and he's only putting these all this stuff in. At, at the very last moment and the longer you leave it the bigger the chance of you making a mistake and i really think that he didn't get his uh get it in also because he doesn't wear an undershirt you see other uh, riders actually wearing an undershirt and an undershirt will help hold uh, positions uh, or uh you know uh, help hold that sort of uh, that, that kind of plastic actually in place it won't shift around uh, uh, so much Obviously, one of the big talking points from it as well was whether or not there should have been a penalty for Fabio, whether or not he should have been immediately brought back into the pits. He was given a three-second penalty, Neil, but uh, what was the feeling within the paddock? Uh, I think the feeling within the paddock, as well as what I've read on um, you know, social media or Twitter uh, from fans, is that he should have been black flagged pretty much straight away. Um, I mean, obviously it says and it states part of the rules that... Um, 
a whole host of riding equipment needs to be securely fastened uh, right the way through the race. And it was very obvious that that wasn't the case there. Um, also, just for Fabio's safety, I mean, um, if there was a part of his bike that was uh, hanging off and was of a particular danger, he would have been shown off black flag immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, as it was, his um, riding equipment was in such a state that he was... It was a real danger to him. It was. Um, it, it doesn't really bear thinking about uh, the consequences if he crashed with his the zip of his leathers down ar- around his midriff. Um, so I think that yeah, it, it's difficult to obviously make such a big call whenever you've got the leader of the championship in this way. But uh, you know, I think for Fabio's safety, there, there really should have been a, a black flag pretty much straight away. Otherwise, um, well. He got away with it, but, you know, he was still having the ride pretty fast and pretty, you know, there was uh, Jack Miller was hovering around him and making moves and diving up his inside. Um, you know, there could have been something where quite easily Fabio could have gone down. Um, and I think the second penalty that came his way, um, which docked him a further three seconds after he was penalised for cutting the, uh, the the first and second corners. Um, yeah, that was kind of closing the barn door after the, uh, the horses bolted, I felt. Yeah, I mean, the, the the penalty just seemed uh, sort of the worst of both worlds, really. I mean, you, you know, you black flag him for his own safety. Um, and it is dangerous. I mean, he's riding around. He is in danger. He's in direct physical danger. I mean, there is the, 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 the philosophy of at-gat all the gear all the time in terms of motorcycle um, uh, riding. And that is basically you, you if you knew, well, uh, I saw it once expressed like this. If I knew what day I was going to crash, I would only put all of my gear on then. Um, and that's the point in motorcycle racing. Crashes are just very, very common. And I think with the uh, with his chest open, with the with the leathers unzipped, they can move around too much, and it could have would have been all too easy for his leathers to come completely open. And then he's got no protection at all. So I think there's also you know there's context involved. I mean, we're seven days after you know the tragedy in Mugello. I think people are quite sensitive to anything to do with danger. But you know the fact that Fabio then. Uh, subjected himself to a sharp focus for um, the stewards um, and and penalties and what kind of sanctions he would have. Um, Also cast more light on the fact that every race in MotoGP at the moment seems to be... um, you know, altered after the checkered flag. Uh, You know, there's this tendency where race stewards are being very minuscule or or they're going into vast detail with the, you know, the interpretation of the rules or whether that be track limits or, you know, some sort of penalty or, you know, long laps. There's, there's, the race is being decided as much by a small screen in an office somewhere as it is on the track, um, you know, with two wheels, engines and throttles. So uh, there's there's quite a big whirlwind around this whole thing. Um, I I think there was a part of it that looked kind of bizarrely cool, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was like a bit of a throwback to the 70s, you know, a guy wa- sort of racing around on a motorcycle with his leathers undone. I just wish he had a big man rug and a, and a medallion. That would have really finished it off. A cigarette hanging out the side of his mouth. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, the 70s when, you know, they were burying riders every other couple of weeks. That's the, the, but, but that's the trouble. But, um, uh, I mean, for me, though, the, the bigger problem, safety problem, was just Moto3, because Moto3, that, that Moto3 race was um, absolutely terrifying. X-rated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it was, and especially the way, I think it was Jeremy Alcoba who was doing most of it, who was slowing up. Uh, I mean, 
it was intelligent in that you don't want to be leading the race. So he was slowing up on the last lap, but then everything was bunching up and it was creating incredibly dangerous situations. And it's just unimaginable that he didn't get a penalty for that. There was just the, it didn't make any sense. Yeah, we'll obviously talk about that in the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show at the end of the week. But it was something, you know, you don't see too often. We actually saw it in Supersport 300 in Aragon as well in the last lap where no one wanted to lead and everyone was trying to be as slow as possible. And it was just like you're watching a cycling race. But it definitely led to another question about rider safety. And, you know, I think that the interesting thing about Fabio was Fabio's last lap of the race was pretty much the same time that Petrucci did as his fastest lap during the race. And that was without his leather zipped up. And it shows just that he wasn't cruising around at the end of the race. He was still pushing hard. And the worst could easily have happened. And I think in the, like Adam said, in light of what we saw last week in Mugello, the timing of this couldn't be worse. And it's definitely something where you'd love to see the reasoning behind not giving him the meatball because, you know, if you turn up at a track day and something like that happens, you're immediately flagged, you're immediately brought back in. You do need your chest protector to pass scrutineering before an event. You need to have it during a race every time you're out on track as well. So there are certain regulations that are there to be met. And, you know, obviously in this case, probably because it happened so late in the day, the stewards are trying to come up with an actual decision and it, you know, decisions aren't made pretty much in the moment. I also wonder, just because it was so unexpected, I mean, uh, I can't remember if it was you or Adam just said, you know, it's it, it's the sort of thing that we, we, you know, we won't see for another two or three decades. It's so, uh, it's so unusual. Probably the stewards didn't have a clue. I mean, th- they were vaguely aware of the rules. They probably knew the rules, but then they thought, oh, okay, right. Now we've got actually got to make a decision about a penalty. It's not something they've ever had to consider before. Um, so, yeah, I mean... The obvious thing would have been a black flag, but then you have to think about the consequences of the uh, of the black flag and, w- and whether that would actually be uh, justified within the rules. Uh, so there was probably some work there. And it was just interesting. Um, obviously, we're recording this on Monday. Uh, there was a post-race test at uh, Montmelo um, today and uh, heard Fabio speak after his day. And I think initially he didn't want to really speak about what happened yesterday with the whole leather thing. But when he was pressed on it, he did say, you know what, I was pissed off yesterday because of the penalty. And, well, the second penalty really pissed me off. But then, um, with a little bit of more calm, um, he admitted that uh, he should have been black flagged. So, um, you know, if the rider in question is saying that I was lucky to get away with it, then I think uh, it does mean that he should have been shown that flag. Well, I'll tell you what, Neil, a tweet from Fabio at half past five today is him sitting on his bike in his shorts saying it's a good thing no one saw me riding like this. So I'm not too sure how much other than a pinch of salt to take from it. But um, Adam, there was obviously an awful lot more happening in this weekend's race as well. What was what was your big moment from the weekend? Uh, yeah, for me, Steve, um, I was impressed by the fact that Remy Gardner again is continuing his evolution. Um, he won. He dealt after showing that he could adapt to you know, his style and uh, the demands of the motorcycle in Mugello. He pretty much did the same thing uh, with the threat of his younger, very kind of robust and aggressive teammate, Raul Fernandez in Catalonia, went back to back, extended his world championship lead. Um, I kind of asked him in the press comments afterwards whether, you know, if 
the news about him going to MotoGP next year had any kind of bearing on his um, state of mind um, in production of the result. And he was typically Australian and like he just shrugged it off and said, no, I mean, there was a nonchalance there. There's a confidence there. Um, you know, the uh, the Rebel KTM IU team have gone uh, one, two, I think, in the last three Grand Prix uh, from both riders. And, uh, you know, they, Rem, Remy Gardner was just talking about the professionalism of the team. I mean, you, you wouldn't give them much more detail. And it's, it's pretty vague because you'd assume that most Moto2 teams at that level are highly professional and highly efficient. Um, but he said, you know, the, the, the way that Ayo sets up things to go racing has made the difference as well as his own development. So, you know, for people who are doubting whether Gardner really should get that slot in MotoGP for 2022, I think that race performance asked, uh, you know, answered a lot of those doubts. Yeah, I thought the last couple of weeks he's really been able to show just how big of a step he's made. And it shows as well just the importance of the people around you because in the past couple of years, obviously, with the stop and go team, you could see flashes of what Remy could do, but he couldn't do it week in, week out. And now you're seeing a big reason for that was the just the way that the teams are set up as well. And it does make a massive difference for it. Dave, what about you? What was your big moment from the weekend? I think my big moment for the weekend was uh, Valentino Rossi crashing out because... Uh, it really looked as if we were on for a Valentino Rossi revival. He had, uh, he was optimistic. He felt he'd made um, some progress at Mugello. He, he certainly seemed to make some progress um, in free practice. He looked, you know, he looked pretty good. Uh, he f- said he felt comfortable. He looked pretty good on, uh, uh, you know, used tyres. Um, he started, uh, he was... His pace, if you look through the practice sessions, I mean, he wasn't going to be on the on the podium. He wasn't going to win anything. Um, but it, it, it looked like he was sort of at the front of, if you like, the third group. There was Fabio Quartararo in terms of pace. And then there was, you know, uh, Oliveira, Zarco, Mir, and a couple of others. Um, and then behind that was Valentino Rossi. So it looked like, you know, he, he should have been on for a decent top 10 finish um but uh, by the end of the first lap i think he was in 17th you know he qualified 11th lost a bunch of uh, uh, positions in the start um and uh, crashed out a few laps later it was just there was all of this talk about uh, Rossi uh, uh, retiring throughout the weekend and uh, he even sort of made a joke about it. He says, yeah, you have one bad session, then all of a, which can happen to anyone. And then all of a sudden, because of his age, the, the, everyone's saying he should retire. Um, then he has a couple of good sessions and everyone's going, oh, no, it's not so bad. He's still got it. Um, and then he has a race like this. And uh, I mean, is he still having fun? Is that an open-ended question for us all, Dave? Because I just can't imagine it. Like, for me, it's one of those cases where, yeah, you can look at it in a few bad sessions and they all add up, you know, a few good sessions, this, that, and the other. The truth is in the middle. And the middle is Valentino Rossi is still one of the top riders in the world. You can't take that away from him. But he's not quite at the level he needs to be to be competitive in MotoGP. And there's other younger riders that would be more competitive on that seat. And as well as that, how much value do Patronus actually get for having Valentino Rossi on their bike? The value is whenever you win races, when you finish on the podium, they're not going to get that from Rossi right now. I thought, um, you know, one of the best tweets actually uh, to give you a full compliment, Neil, that you made over the weekend was that, you know, when Rossi made the cut to Q2, you know, his team were celebrating, you know, like he had won. I mean, there was a real uh sense of relief 
um, as much as anything, you know, on that achievement of the fact that he had made it through a, a stage on Saturday. And you kind of think, well, you know, here's a guy, a serial winner, um, you know, it's an icon of the sport, a guy who transcends the sport. And, you know, is that is that what it's come down to? You know, um, qualifying to, you know, getting through to Q2 is, is a highlight of the weekend. I mean, I know he's been in a rut and it's not been an easy time, but you kind of think, you know, how, how low are your standards going to drop before you say, guys, you know, I'm, I'm not really cutting it. I'm not finding myself competitive. For some reason, I can't make this whole thing work. Um, you know, I was discussing it as well in the press room over the weekend. And Rossi obviously doesn't give much of a toss about legacy, you could say. Um, otherwise, he would have retired arguably when he was, you know, world champion last. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a deep-seated uh, passion or, um, you know, yeah, it's... He's, he's, you know, he's, he wants the lifestyle, you know, he loves being a MotoGP rider, he likes motor, riding a motorcycle at 350Ks, it's, you know, it's not going to be anything more because he's on a Yamaha, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something I think it's going to be hard for him to give up, but, you know, I, I, he's going to have to make some sort of decision or like you say, Steve, Patronus are in the next coming, in the coming few weeks. You always have to remember that no matter how good any sportsman is, more often than not, the decision to retire is made by someone else. And the decision to retire is where you don't have a place on the football team anymore. You've picked up an injury, or in this case, you don't have a bike anymore. You know, obviously Rossi has his own team on the grid next year. Maybe that's enough for him to say, I'm happy enough to be a part of that and to still be in the paddock, this, that and the other. Or else he'll just say, it's my bike. I'm riding it. And uh, that's that's where the decision's going to come. Nobody's going to tell Cristiano Ronaldo when to tire, retire. Nobody's you know going to tell Michael Jordan when to retire or Tiger Woods. I mean, he's up there with that kind of level of of athlete. I tell you what, they do tell them to retire, and it it does happen. And the reason for it is is that teams do eventually get to the point where the value that you give that team moves away. Even uh, like uh, you mentioned Jordan, the other big star in American sports back then would have been Brett Favre. And the decision to retire him was basically made by one of his teams where they said, you know what, we've got better options now, mate. He ended up playing on for another few years. But, you know, you're moving down the ways whenever you start doing that. Ronaldo, you know, there's a lot of talk that he's going back to sport in Lisbon. You know, no one's saying that the Portuguese league is where you need to be. But, you know, it's where Ronaldo is going to get an option to play. For Valentino, I don't see why he'd decide now to opt to go to World Superbikes. His chance to move to Superbikes was a few years ago if he wanted it. Now his choices are, you know, do you still want to race on? If he does, see if you can get a seat. Uh, I think Valentino, I mean, the reason that so much of these people do it is because they love to win. It's that success. I mean, it's not the racing, it's the winning. That's why they do it. It's the achieving. It's beating other people. Um, and that's just not happening. Um, and I think, um, I honestly don't expect you to be in the paddock next year in as a team manager. I expect you to be off racing cars somewhere um, because he's talked a lot about endurance racing. We've seen him racing endurance, uh, endurance series and stuff. Um, so I can see him going off and doing that. And that is something you can do, he could do for another month I don't know, maybe 10 years because it's a different um, discipline. 
uh, and it's something that he could be successful at. We saw him do actually, you know, actually do quite well, get on the podium. I think in wherever it was, Abu Dhabi or some godforsaken um, uh, uh, prison camp in the Middle East. Um, uh, so yeah, that'll be th th that's is where I think we are. Uh, that's where I think he's going to end up. I think he's going to end up at racing endurance cars. And as well as that, Dave, he can go race endurance if he wants and be a big draw, be a big star. Valentino Rossi's here racing our cars. Whereas right now in MotoGP, Valentino Rossi, you don't see him too much on TV anymore. And fair enough, you still see a lot of, we saw a lot of yellow in the crowd in Catalonia, but for an awful lot of fans, the time where Valentino Rossi was the best rider that the world had ever seen is a very long time ago. And for an awful lot of the audience, maybe they were never able to see Rossi like that. And that's when it all moves along. And that's where, like for me, my moment of the weekend was Mark looking for a toe and qualifying again. And he sits behind Jack Miller and, you know, Jack's looking for 20 bucks to take him down pit lane, basically. And, you know, you're looking at it where, you know, obviously you expect Mark's going to get back to being Mark at some point. But, we also have to look at it that he's got a serious injury. It's clearly still affecting him. And, you know, maybe he won't be the Mark Marquez that we once saw. Maybe he'll just be just a guy. He'll just be fast on his day. He'll struggle at other days. And, you know, you wait and see. We're waiting for it to all click into place for Mark. And, you know, it might well do that. But right now you are playing that waiting game. Mark Marquez is going to win in their next race. Oh, that's a big claim. There you go. It'll be a short wait, Dave, then. In fairness, me and Ad were talking about it in uh, the Paddock Note show yesterday, where we were saying, if there is a time for Honda, it's obviously Saxon Ring. For 10 years, they've been unbeaten there. Mark's been unbeaten there for 10 years as well. This is the real test for them. If they can't get it done in Germany, then there's a lot of big questions. But the thing as well is, um, you know, the longer it takes Mark to try to get up to speed, maybe... You know, there's a thought process inside Honda or at least upper management where they realize, you know, we have to maybe radically alter the motorcycle because we can't depend on this superstar anymore to to deliver us serial wins and championships. Um, you know, and arguably that decision should have been taken a few years ago. Well, the one thing we saw at the Catalan test today, David, we're obviously recording this on Monday, was we saw that Honda did bring quite a lot of developments. Brian, uh, you know, an absolutely totally different fairing brought out at the test. Mark did, I think, was the best part of 90 laps. A lot of miles under his belt. And it looked like Honda were trying to try a lot of new stuff. Yeah, I think they were also testing a an aluminium swing arm, which is um, uh, also interesting because the aluminium swing arm gives that little bit more feeling um, from the rear, which is, to an extent, you know, what, uh, KTM has, what has brought quite a KTM success which is in search of rear grip the one thing which the Honda doesn't have is rear grip they have to fix that um, uh, they, they, there are disadvantages to it to um, uh, to an aluminium swing arm or there are advantages to having a carbon swing arm but it becomes much stiffer and it becomes much less uh, it becomes much more difficult to get or uh, uh, it's less forgiving um, uh, generally as a um, uh, as a material so uh, yeah it's quite clear that they're working for the future but the fact that mark marquez did 87 laps during the test says to me that he's in much 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 better shape than he was um you know a month ago at the last uh, last test in jerez 
Yeah, we'll see what sort of shape he is to be able to live up to your billing, Dave. The ga- all I heard was an ironclad guarantee that Mark Marquez is going to win next race in Saxon Ring. So we'll see if the test makes a big difference for that. Obviously enough, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we've still got an awful lot of ground to cover from the Catalan Grand Prix. So when we come back after the break, we're going to dive into a few more of the big talking points from Barcelona. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. Neil, obviously enough, we've talked quite a bit there about an awful lot that's gone on from the Catalan Grand Prix, but we haven't actually mentioned really the race winner. Uh, this was hugely impressive from KTM and hugely impressive from Miguel Oliveira. Sacrilege, Steve. We're 30 minutes into this podcast and we haven't mentioned the winner, the man that just produced the race of his life um, to take he the... Did, he did get briefly mentioned <laughs> whenever Adam said that Fabio was catching him and it would have been a good battle. But yeah, 33 minutes into the podcast, let's talk about the guy that actually got the 25 points. Yeah, there you go, Mig. Adam mentioned you whenever he was discussing Fabio. Uh, you know, have that. I think I said the leader as well, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was quite a remarkable performance. Miguel's showing in Mugello um, seven days ago was great, like really fantastic stuff you know uh, KTM hadn't really gone so well around Mugello before uh, but this was just confirmation of that um, and you know for all the talk about Fabio and his leathers coming undone you know Adam was mentioning there that uh, he felt there was maybe a late move coming from Fabio but I think Miguel actually had it sussed because uh, you know we we're getting towards the final part of the race um, and you know the tires were in such a state that Okay, we saw Zarco kind of honing in on uh, Oliveira, but I don't really think Fabio was in a in a position to really do anything. He was talking about uh, how Miguel was just so much stronger in the left corners. Um, he said the corner entry of the KTM was really impressive, um, and he said it was something that he had noted uh, from his days in Moto Two that Miguel was just always stronger through turn seven and eight. That kind of um, that switch from left to right, and then I think from ten and eleven through to twelve. He said he noticed that Miguel was always so strong in those changes of direction in Moto2 and the same again in the race. Um, so, you know, for, for Miguel to show up and produce that kind of performance and stop the, the Quadraro freight train um, when it was sort of building up to juggernaut levels, um, I think it was it was remarkable. Um, and, you know, we can talk about KTM making fantastic improvements, which they have done, but Brad Bender was no slouch and he was eighth. So I think a lot of this was also done to Miguel. Yeah, I thought Iker Lekwona had a really good weekend as well before his crash. But Neil, David always talks about FP4 being the most important session of the weekend, the only session that's actually valuable. But FP2 was actually really valuable because that's when Miguel was using the hard tyre and effectively forced a lot of riders to think about the hard tyre as an option. He seemed to go to this weekend with a lot of his decisions already made up. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the conditions kind of played into um, KTM's hand because they were able to use the hard front, which uh, obviously they're kind of dependent on. Um, when we got to Barcelona last year, they weren't able to use that because of the cold temperatures and they had a nightmare. Um, obviously, they weren't able to use the hard front in Qatar because the race was at night and the temperatures were too low and obviously that really affected the performances there. So yeah, um, the fact that uh, we had those 
higher track temps obviously played into their hands, but it was still um, quite a remarkable thing. Um, you know, we at KTM were, were not really anywhere in Barcelona last year. Um, and Oliveira, I think some questions were seriously being asked about him um, when we left uh, when we left Jerez, when we left France as well, crashed out of the race there. He obviously had a, a pretty bad home GP. Brad Binder outperformed him. Um, but he's come out swinging. And, um, you know, the championship does seem an awful long way away. But Fabio again today was saying that he fully expects Miguel and KTM to be in the title fight uh, towards the end of the year. So, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, you can't really speak highly enough of this guy at the moment. Yeah, I mean, a sign of the confidence he had on Friday was the fact that he did try the hard tyre and he didn't even bother trying to put in a fast time in FP2. He was confident enough that he could get a fast lap on FP3, get through to Q2. I mean, it was um, uh, he was so totally focused on the race, also knowing that the the track at, in Barcelona is so difficult. It's such a it's such a tricky track precisely because of the amount of there's no grip um and yet even though there's no grip the tire where what tires wear really really quickly so it's such a difficult track to actually manage a race and i suppose you know they're probably he's probably um the most um well what certainly one of the most intelligent riders arguably the most intelligent rider on the grid uh so it's no surprise that he actually thought about everything and, and planned the whole thing out and did it really really well yeah, team manager Mike Leitner as well was praising him. I mean, it was a faultless performance. And um, one of the things that's always impressive about Oliver is that he never seems to doubt himself. I mean, especially in his words with the press, there's always that same kind of level-headed approach um, dealing with daft questions, you know, as they deserve to be dealt with. Uh, you know, you wouldn't guess that if this guy was in crisis, I think it'd be very hard to tell. Um, you know, he's he just seems very kind of uh, mature in the way he handles things. I mean, journalists were asking him, you know, if if there was a, a you know a, a, a doomsday situation around KTM because you know he had only accumulated I think nine points from five races, uh, and then suddenly he goes to Mugello, takes second place, wins in Catalonia. I mean, he made forty five points out of a possible fifty. Um, so you know, he suddenly leapt up the championship table. I think it's still a big. Um, question mark as to whether he can be a title contender moving forward even though we have enough races left but uh, you know a big test will be at the Saxon ring for the KTM whether that RC16 can really turn and, and continue the speed through the corners and then Aston as well I mean if if, if, if Oliver is in, in podium contention after the next two Grand Prix then uh, yeah then watch out I think um, you just have to look at his performance. I think you can almost say the same thing about um, any of the, the top four guys or the, the guys that finished um, the race in the top four. Um, but, you know, you look at Oliveira's times, um, his fastest lap was a 40.2. His final lap was a 41.2. That's a drop of one second. I mean, in previous years in Barcelona, we've seen tires drop and the pace drop by three seconds or more. Um, so I think that obviously... I think that the tires were in a better situation here, um, but it just shows you um, how well Miguel was riding, how well he was managing the tire, and um, yeah, how well KTM is working basically. Because uh, you know Fabio was saying that okay, I felt a little bit stronger in corner entry, but Miguel was also strong there. He was just saying the drive though, the traction that it's able to produce is really quite astonishing. So yeah, it looks like KTM are, are back to where they were at the end of last year, which was you know one of the leading bikes on the grid Adam you said that you wouldn't fancy 
going up against Miguel for his poker face. If there was one rider on the grid who you'd love to play poker against, who would it be? Uh, well, if we're talking poker, I mean, Fabio likes to take his clothes off. So, you know, you, you'd imagine you got a decent chance against him. Um, goodness, I don't know. We didn't say strip poker, right? No, well, you know, that's just the way my mind thinks now on poker. There you go. Uh, there's lots of resources on the internet these days. Uh, God, that's a question. That's really throwing me on the spot. Um, I don't know, Steve. There's some really dramatic characters. I mean, you've got to love it for the, the for the transparency of the emotions and, you know, the, the way these riders get worked up and they're clearly passionate about what they do. But, uh, you know, uh, there's something um, admirable about the way that Oliveira just deadpans and, you know, keeps a straight face in, in sort of, you know, the, any kind of line of inquiry, really. Yeah, well, you've got Ma- you've got Miguel obviously taking that sort of approach. Maverick obviously takes a very different approach. And this was a weekend where Maverick Vinales really, he put his cards on the table. He changed his crew chief. He's decided to try something different. And uh, David, it worked really well because he was fast in the test today. So that that's clearly... The big change from Maverick. Yep, that's right. He retains his um, uh, uh, un- his undefeated king of testing, um, coveted king of testing. Oh yes, yes, he retained his coveted king of testing title certainly. Um, uh, but I mean, uh, uh, honestly, I it felt like there was a change because um, he didn't get completely lost. There was a lot of things went. I won't say badly, but you know, the 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 didn't go as well as they could have gone for him um uh, he had strong pace he was very happy also he seemed to be treating this weekend more like a test than like a like an actual race um uh, he was because changing a crew chief is such an enormous change um, everything is suddenly different so um that was a really really big thing he also had a bit of a media storm to deal with when um Dazon did what I can only assume to be an extremely tedious interview, which they decided to spice up by taking quotes out of context, um, and uh, every everyone suddenly panicking, um, and yeah, he, they Salvano Galbusera changed the changed working around a lot. They changed the bike a lot. They moved it around a lot. They learned a lot. Maverick learned a lot. Um, he if he hadn't have got stuck behind Juan Mir. Uh, he could have done better. He ended up finishing, I think, fifth. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't a decent. It was a decent. It it was not fantastic, but it was it was much better than we've come to expect from you know the typical Vinales disaster when things go wrong. Dave, it was his actually his best result since round two, uh, and he won the opening Grand Prix. Um, you know, he bagged eleven points, and that was his best result since that time. So arguably, he could have turned the corner. But if you look at the race, you will notice that Maverick didn't actually overtake, I think, a single bike in the race. So he got shuffled back down to uh, seventh at the end of lap one. He was looking quite aggressive. He got overtaken by uh, Maverick. He got overtaken by Zarco. He got overtaken, I think, by Aleish early on. Um, But all of those guys, well, Zarco not, but uh, Marquez crashed, uh, Aleix crashed, and that put him up to, to sixth on the track. And then, you know, it was clear that he had far superior pace than uh, Joanne Mir because Mir chose the wrong tyre, uh, went with the medium, um, whereas he felt that the hard was the uh, the option. It was the option of the, the leading guys on the track. Um, and, you know, Maverick, despite that, couldn't get past him. And we know that Mir is a, a demon on the brakes, but, um, you know, 
you have to be able to get past someone um, in these kind of situations. But, these when you're playing for these kind of big points. But Neil, in, in the circumstances, I'll I'll say that was a pretty good result. I mean, the fact that he has kind of turned his team upside down, um, you know, and he's maybe hinting at the fact that you know the the harmony Yamaha Yamaha is not uh, so settled. Um, you know, I think you know he he managed to, he managed to dig that one out. Yeah, it wasn't a disaster um, by any stretch, but um, I don't think it was, you know, a, a sign that Maverick has suddenly turned the corner and is going to be fighting for race wins from now. I think it was just uh, another kind of performance in keeping with what we've seen so far this year. Now, I would say the, the Magello was uh, what we'd been used to and expecting, uh, and it wasn't Magello at all. It was much better. So I... Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. Uh, obviously, you know, he's still a flawed rider. He still has areas he needs to improve, but um, this was uh, better than expected. Yeah, and I think for me, obviously, Dave, you mentioned there about areas that he has to improve. For me, one of the big storylines this weekend was Johan's Arkel because we saw, again, another good step being made by Zarco. He keeps just grinding out results. He's now 14 points behind Fabio in the championship. He's had four podiums. He's obviously had his crash in Portimao earlier in the season. But other than that, he pretty much hasn't put a foot wrong. And obviously, he's got his contract sorted for the future. He's going to stay with the Pramac team. And now he can just really relax into this season. I think being, and myself and Adam talked about it on Paddock Notes last night, being in an independent team can suit some riders and it really looks to suit Johan Zarco. He gets top-class machinery and he has it without having the pressure of being that factory Ducati rider. Yeah, but I I think, I mean, he's having a really solid, um, uh, shall we say, Juan Mir-esque season. Um, I think the disadvantage of being in the Pramac team is that Ducati can get very um, picky about who they allow to win. And if he keeps on winning and uh, or if he keeps on beating um, Miller and Banyaya, uh, then he will likely be given testing work. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens. But I'm... Uh, it's obviously he's having a really really strong season but i think the situation that he is in is going to work against him at some point in time because ducati are notoriously fickle on a what about um the next couple of rounds then dave for johan obviously like you said there could be certain certain responsibilities that come his way now but uh, when you look at these next couple of rounds Saxon Ring's always been a tough one for Ducati. This is going to be a real test for them. And then obviously we go to Aslan after that. These back-to-back races are going to be really tough for Ducati, potentially. Yeah, I mean, Saxon Ring has generally been a complete disaster because the Saxon Ring is the absolute opposite of what the Ducati does well. Uh, there's uh, You're spending all of the time on the edge of the tyre with partial throttle, there's nowhere that you can really open it up. There's no way you, I mean, the only place that you actually use sort of any horsepower is back up the hill uh, onto the front straight and the front straight is really short. Um, so yeah, there's not much, there's not much there for them. And the, and, and you have had a bit of a, a, a bit of a difficult um, time at, Assen as well because it's such one of those fast flowing circuits but then we saw uh, Ducati doing well in uh, in Jerez we saw Ducati doing well in uh, Mugello um, 
I think they can face uh, Aston with a bit more optimism. But uh, again, Aston really looks like a, a, a Yamaha track. And it's another track where Quattararo, um, uh, in theory, you know, if he can keep his, if he can, if he can stop being topless, um, then uh, maybe he can actually, you know, w win a race again. So, yeah, I, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, I'm very interested to see Aston, especially how Ducati do there. Um, just to finish off the show, as usual, we're going to move on to our winners and losers from the weekend. Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner from the Catalan Grand Prix? I think I went for Miguel Oliveira last week, Steve, um, after Mugello. So this occasion, um, to avoid um, being repetitive, I'm going to go with uh, Joanne Zarco. I mean, we just spoke about him. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think he's doing a, a tremendous job. It was another really really strong performance don't think anyone was as, as fast as Johan at the uh, at the end of the race um, got within a tenth of winning his first ever MotoGP race um, and you know like there's been a couple of occasions where you thought this is Fabio's year but then something happens at Jerez with his arm something happens with his leathers um, in Barcelona and you know Zarco's just quietly there um, he's kind of I think he made mention of uh, what Joanne Mir did last year in the press conference after the race and said, you know, this is what uh, can win championships in, in, in this day and age without a kind of dominant figure like Marquez. Um, so, yeah, I think Zarco, um, just for getting so close to the win, for taking points off Fabio Cordero in the championship fight, um, and, uh, yeah, looking like maybe the strongest Ducati. In that case, then, I'll have to follow up and say uh, the other man on the podium, which was Jack Miller, um, you know, it was another a trophy for the Australian. And, um, you know, after the first couple of races where he th we thought he was not only out of the championship fight, but also out of his job. Uh, now he's only, I think, 25 points off Quattararo in the championship. He's moved all the way up to third place. Um, I don't think anybody really tipped Miller for, you know, a potential top three finish in Barcelona. Um, you know, even though the fact that we've seen him on, on the, the Panagali doing track days, uh, he obviously knows the place intimately. Uh, but, you know, that, that was a, an impressive performance, I think. Uh, so for me, um, the winner, uh, you know, has to be Jack. New Steve, who, who was your pick? Oh, well, just to follow on about Jack as well, like I was, I bumped into him at uh, Montenegro a couple of weeks ago when there was a Model 2 test on. And I couldn't get over just how chilled he was. Obviously, he was coming there on the back of winning races and feeling good about himself, but he was just as chilled as he was six, seven years ago whenever he turned up in the Moto3 paddock. You know, he really does seem to take the right mental approach right now, and that's easier whenever the results go your way. Obviously, after a pretty shaky couple of rounds at the start of the year, it would have been easy to go the other way, but yeah, I think it's been really impressive. Ad. For me... I think, you know, I'm going to go with KTM as my big winner. Obviously, Miguel Oliveira's victory. But when you tie that in as well with what we saw in the Moto2 class, they've obviously, like you said at the top of the show, Adam, they've confirmed Remy Gardner for next year. They've potentially got Raul Fernandez as well. Both of those guys could step up onto a Tactois bike next year. I think, you know, the future looks really good for KTM and the strength of what we saw with their improvements over the course of the last couple of rounds with their upgrades really bodes well. And now you get to see whether or not that translates to the next couple of rounds, the back-to-backs in Germany and in the Netherlands. But Dave, what about you? Who was your big winner from the weekend? Uh, well, I'm going to pick two riders. I'm going to be something um, uh, a little controversial um, uh, because I'm going to check... Uh we asked for the winners, not for predictions. 
I am going to choose. Um, uh, There's no need for predictions. Dave's already guaranteed everyone that Marquez is going to win the next race. Exactly. No, my winners are um, Fabio Quartararo and Mark Marquez. And uh, the reason for Fabio Quartararo being a big winner is because he should have been black flagged. He should have lost twenty five points, but he got, but he got, he scored ten points, and um, he got away with that one. He really escaped. I mean, we all had him nailed on for the win. He didn't get the win, but he still got ten, he still got ten points. Ten points, which um, perhaps he shouldn't have deserved if it wasn't, or he wouldn't have got if it wasn't for a mistake by the stewards. And Mark Marquez, Mark said on Sunday, he said, um, I, I felt like Mark again. I was Mark again. That, I think, is a really, really big statement. He said he could ride, you know, both sides, left and right, um, uh, fairly comfortably. Um, he felt he could push. He felt he could risk. I mean, we saw him take risks because he crashed out. Uh, the first time, I think, that he's ever crashed out in three races in a row. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think this was a weekend, especially coming off a, a race last weekend. Um, this was a weekend in which Mark felt like he made a step forward and that uh, his old level was attainable again. So, yeah, like I say, I think those two bit sort of under the radar, but I think those two actually came out much better than they had any rights to expect to. Neil, what about you? Obviously, winners and losers. Obviously, the big loser is us because David's decided to do this whole show topless in honour of Fabio. But uh, for, for you, who was the big loser from the weekend? Yeah, pull your zip up, please, Dave, please. Um, put the chest protector back on. Um, I'm going to say, Steve, um, that my big loser, I mean, it kind of sounds silly, but Jeremy Alcoba, um, just for some of his antics in the Moto3 race, I mean, David made mention of it earlier, Um it was intelligent and it helped him get a second place and that was a good performance. And, you know, you speak to Alcoba after the race and he comes across as like a nice, decent guy. But I, I really don't think, I think he is extraordinarily lucky to have kept that result. Um, I think he should have been disqualified. I think it was dangerous riding and I think he created, frankly, a ridiculously dangerous situation that could have ended in total disaster. Um, now, he obviously wasn't the only Moto3 rider that uh, made a few un uh, a few questionable moves in that race. But I think with, um, you know, Alcoba being involved in, obviously, the, the sort of tragic accident, um, and a couple of Moto3 riders mentioned it before the race, that, uh, okay, maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to what we do on track. I thought it was, um, I thought it was quite out of line, to be honest. Um, and um, yeah, frankly, he came away extremely unfortunate not to have been disqualified, I think, because that was a, a really dangerous situation. Yeah, we'll obviously talk about that during the follow-up show later in the week. David, what about you? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Valentino Rossi because, um, uh, you know, the, the, for a little while there, there was light at the end of the tunnel, um, but it turned out to be an oncoming train. Um, it it looked like he had some pace um, and then it all came to nothing in the race. Um, and time is getting short. He basically has two races to make a decision about his future. One of them is at Saxon Ring, which is not a track he particularly likes or is particularly good at. The other one is at Assen, um, where there are so many riders who could do well. And it, even if he has a good weekend, he's likely to get outperformed. So, yeah, I think um, uh, I think it was a very, very, very tough weekend for Valentino Rossi. Dave, do you think 
does Valentino see out the season? Of course he does. But firstly, because who else are you going to put on the bike? Um, uh, and secondly, he signed up for it. So, you know, he, he ECA is out. I mean, he, he, for a start, he'd like to, he, he gets to ride at Misano. You know, he would get to get say goodbye at Misano. And if, there were rumours of there being two races at, at Misano if uh, some of the flyaways are cancelled. So, yeah, no, of course, he, of course he sees out the season. He sees out the season, and then he goes to race cars in, um, in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, you know, there's five races after Mizano as well, though, Dave. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, Adam, what about you? Who was the big loser from the weekend? Uh, for me, Steve, I'm going to have to say Paul Spargaro. Um, home Grand Prix uh, at DNF. And it just seems with every passing Grand Prix that the urge or the need to say, is there any regret, Paul? Because you had a team, you had a bike, you had a whole project, you had a whole factory that was so, you know, um, involved with you behind you um, you know and that that factory has now taken second and first positions in the last couple of Grand Prix I'm sure at the beginning of the season the Spargo and Mayer looked at KTM after they were struggling with the the 21 you know Michelin allocation he thought Oof, you know I'm maybe I jumped out at the right time uh, but you know and I don't think you can ever underestimate the resources and the expertise that are at, at that you know inside HRC so eventually they will get it right and it's just whether he's there to take profit of it but if you look at um, the scorecard so far for Paul, 29 points. I think he's 12th in the championship. Um, his highest result is eighth. And I think, you know, he only, he managed that on, on less than two occasions, you know, in 2020 on the KTM. I think if you had said to him almost halfway through your first season at HRC, this is what you're going to get, you know, when he was in the negotiation phase for that contract in last year. I'm sure he would have thought mm, maybe I, 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 it might be better for me to stay where I am. I mean, even as much as the, the the prospect of going up against Marquez and being with one of the most famous, renowned teams, you know, all that kind of allure, you know, what is what helped him make the jump. You, you just have to imagine that somewhere there's part of uh, this guy who's, uh, you know, takes take such delight in, in molding a team around him. Um, you know, I, I believe he might have thought twice or at least, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure he thought twice anyway, but he would have thought more. Yeah, you, you listen to people that are involved with KTM, and you know they, they said that basically they everyone loved him there. That was uh, that was basically his team set up around him, as you mentioned, Adam. If you look back at the race, uh, I think there was probably nothing more predictable than Espargaro crashing on. He crashed in qualifying, obviously. And if you watch the first four laps, I mean, he looked really, really ragged. Anytime he was overtaking, he was running wide. He just looked like absolutely on the limit. And that's what he was saying, basically, um, throughout the weekend with, uh, I think, um, the lack of rear grip. Um, and, uh, yeah, crashing on at lap five, it's it's not going not going well. Do we think that um, Paul has uh, Jorge Lorenzo uh, at Honda levels of regret or Marco Melandri at Ducati levels of, uh, of regret? I think the helmet choice for the last two rounds will probably be something he'll regret. That's a big factor, Steve. He's saying that's a can, you know, factor. No, but also, I mean, on a serious note, it's it's also a little, uh, it's it's a bit sad to see, you know, Paul's a character, you know, we've all spoken with him, we've all interviewed him. I mean, he's a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, if there's an achievement, whether it's a podium finish or getting within, you know, a last corner of a victory, you know, the, the emotion is splashed all over the guy's demeanor. So to see him really struggling is also a little bit, uh, a bit of a shame. Yeah, his debriefs now are just, miserable but really miserable and you just sort of like sit there 
feeling sorry for him because you can see he's hating every minute of it. And that's not it's not the poll that we know. Even when he was struggling, even at KTM, when things were difficult, he was at least sort of optimistic. But, but, but this is just terrible. He was asking for concessions <laughs> for Honda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which they're not going to get because Mark Marcus is going to win in Saxon Ring. Well, I mean, Honda haven't won since nine, 2019. I mean, I think uh, Matt Oxley wrote a blog about that, uh, you know, on Motorsport, uh, Motorsport Magazine, um, and, you know, highlighted that fact. Uh, so it's, it's not a good time. And when a rider like Taka Nakagami is saying something has to be done, you know, we have to do something to, to try and show the potential of this bike. Um, you know, that's a very unusual kind of uh, impassioned plea for, for some action in, inside Honda. And also there were rumors that, you know, there could be a management switch around among the Japanese uh, in Catalonia. So maybe maybe the, uh, you know, the ground is, is starting to move a little bit for HRC. Yeah, I think for me, my big loser from the weekend was, I think it's hard not to say Alex Rins. You know, coming into the weekend, obviously a home race for Rins, a lot of pressure on him already coming into this on the back of what's been a really error-strewn few rounds for him. And then it's not even the fact that he, he gets hurt. It's the fact that it just sounds ridiculous. He, he's out cycling the track and he crashes into a, a van, a Dorna van out on the track setting everything up. It just encapsulates the kind of luck that Rins has right now. And like, you know, we've talked about Alex quite a bit on the podcast over the last couple of months. And, you know, for a lot of it, you're trying to find the positives. You're trying to see like, well, you know, he's he's at the front. He's doing this. He's doing that. This one, on the other hand, is just one of those ones where you just think, you know, this is just a horrendous run that you're on, mate. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was so stupid. It was really. I, and honestly, I'd completely forgotten about it uh, until he brought it up. But again, I have to come back to Fabio Quartararo. It was about details. I mean, like it, it's attention to detail. One of the one of the things where uh, the, one of the details you pay attention to is the fact that there is a van uh, sort of ahead while you're cycling and looking at your phone. And it's the same with you when your leathers. When you put your you when you are preparing for the race, you make sure you get all of the details right. This is just it's just sort of you know slackness, if you like. Yeah, and I think it's one of those ones where when David Emmett's giving you advice about <laughs> the the day dangers of crashing from a bicycle i think that's always one of those things that uh, should make everyone sit up and take notice was it a van or was it a bus i mean uh you know really if you're going to crash into something i mean go go for it but i think that i mean steve you mentioned rins again i mean i just feel sympathy for the guy i mean i think he's been somebody's loser pick on the paddock pass podcast since you know the season started which must be well that's some sort of achievement you know that's maybe a consecutive uh consecutive record there we'll have to look it up but uh, it, uh, I have to say, like one one of the big problems with it is, is that like if you think back to when the run really set in for him, it was in Portugal, and at that time, like I was talking in terms of, you know, he's trying to win a Grand Prix. You know, sometimes you have to take a chance, and then some of the crashes since then have been where you know sometimes you're better off just taking, you know, that step back, or you know, it's easy for us to say, you know, anytime these guys are out on on track, they're on the limit, and if you step over that limit, something bad can happen. That's why this one is just so ridiculous and so unfortunate for Rins because it takes him out from this round. He has to have surgery. Will he be back for Germany? Will Gintoli be on the bike? You know, what's going to happen for Suzuki? And, you know, the most important ability is availability a lot of the time. And uh, unfortunately for Rins, he doesn't have that right now. And, you know, what he's done essentially has ruled himself out of 
probably the front running of three racetracks, three races that he probably had a decent shot at winning, if not finishing on the podium. I mean, great record in Barcelona. Suzuki works well there. Uh, last time we went to Saxon Ring, he was second before he crashed. Last time we went to Assen, he was leading when he crashed. So, you know, he's, he's basically ruled himself out of three racetracks, um, which he had a, a decent chance of maybe winning. Key phrase there being when he crashed. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I think it's one of those ones as well where, especially at a re- weekend where it was tough to come up with the right tyre choices, Suzuki really could have done with the extra data. Maybe Mir wouldn't have gone on to that tyre if he's got rins. There's a lot of things go into it, and that's where, you know, obviously on a podcast, we can all have opinions until the cows come home, but it's just where it gets a little bit unfortunate. But Obviously enough, with the Paddock Pass podcast, we'll also have opinions on the Moto2 and Moto3 races. It's already been mentioned a couple of times on the show, just uh, what we saw in the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. So on the Moto- on the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show, we'll look at the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. But until then, a big thank you from myself, Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, Adam Wheeler. Um, a big thank you to all of our supporters at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for supporting the podcast and for everyone for listening to today's paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberties all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com I apologise in advance to Brian. You might hear a munching on my audio channel. It's just me finishing my dinner. Um, what do you have for your dinner, Ad? I have a salad with bits of provolone inside it. Mm. That doesn't sound like much of a dinner.